The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that's in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Those are verses 8 to 11 of Psalm 7, which along with Psalm 4 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, October the 10th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are looking at the, um, the fi- we're finishing up our look at um, the prophecy of Micah today in chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. We're in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. And then in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 26, the first 23 verses. So we've got a lot to deal with today. The, the passage from Micah today is basically it's the recognition that, that you can't trust in, in anyone that all have fallen away, and that God alone is all. And, and that's exactly what God will say as well, and say it through the psalmist, that don't put your trust not in rulers, but trust in the Lord only. And there's multiple reasons to do that. He is the, the unchanging one. He is the one who cannot lie. He's the one who cannot break his own covenants. He is eternal. I mean, there, there's a million different reasons that, that you should put your trust entirely in the Lord and not in um, other people. And yet we do it all the time. I've, I've known too many people who have been burned by putting their trust in this person or that person. Um, and who has been the bane of the church, it seems, over the last whatever period of time, because we see leaders that people had put their trust in who have who were fallen. Well, what a surprise, because we're all fallen ultimately, that we can't put our trust in anyone except the one who has been raised from the dead, the only one in the history of humankind to have been raised from the dead. That authenticates him as true. So we need to only trust in him. Now, how do we do that? And what does that look like? And and that's sort of what the, the others lessons are. It's the authority of Jesus. I was talking to a friend the other day. We were talking about this issue of authority, and and because I, I was talking to him that, that it seemed like, at least for, for last week, everything had to do with authority. Who had the authority to do what, and where did that authority come from? And we know ultimately all authority comes from God, and so my friend made a great point, and that is all authority comes from God, all true authority comes from God, mostly what we see is not the exercise of authority, but the exercise of power. And that's an important distinction to make. So in the, um, in the Micah passage, woe is me, for I become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. In other words, we've passed the harvest season, and there's nothing left. So I have become like that. And the godly has perished from the earth. So that's what he's talking about. This is the, the, the comparison. The summer fruit's gone. The grapes are gone. There's no first ripe fig. Um, and so the godly has perished from the earth. And so he's comparing the summer fruit, the grapes, and the figs to the godly. They perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. 
That's a what a powerful statement that is to say their hands are on what is evil to do it well. In other words, there's no half measures for this. There's a wholehearted commitment to do evil well. Those two things seem not to go together, but certainly we understand it. We understand it completely. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. This is your wife. Don't trust anybody. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. We can see that in Habakkuk saying, I don't understand what's going on around here, so I'm just going to stand like a watchman on the wall to wait and see what the truth is. And that's exactly what we're called to do. We are called to look for the Lord and to wait for the God of our salvation. My God will hear me. And that goes all the way back to Hagar, that she saw that God heard her, which is the name of her son, Ishmael. So we need to recognize God does indeed hears us, hear us. And we can see this same attitude in Jonah. We can see it when he cries out from the belly of the fish. We can likewise see it in Job, who says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth, and in my eyes I will see God. There's this faith that says, I've looked all around me for, for faithfulness and uprightness and truth, and, and I can't find it anywhere. And so I'm going to stop looking to men, and I'm going to turn myself, and I'm going to turn to the Lord, and I'm going to wait for him because I know that he will hear me in this moment. And, and it's, it's a, a powerful, powerful statement on Micah's part to say, you've shown me everything that I need to know about other people. And now all I can do is turn to you. There's no one else in whom I can put my trust in. And, and that's not cynicism. It's reality. Because we're, we're changeable people. You know, uh, um, sometimes I'm likely to tell you something not because it's true, but because I don't want to upset you. I don't want you to dislike me if I tell you the truth. And so I, I might fudge that a little bit for those reasons, you know, and I know that about myself. I'm, I'm well aware of that about myself. And, and I try daily to be better about speaking the truth, even when it's going to hurt somebody's feelings. But it, but it's not easy for me. In the gospel, the gospel is the story of the Gerasene demoniac, which which another one of those passages that it seems like I comment on pretty regularly. There must be something God is trying to teach me about this that may, that causes me to be so aware of how often it seems that I comment on this. So then they, after after the um, the episode on the lake when Jesus calms the storm, they sail to the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So it's on the other side of the lake. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had many demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So what you see is, is I mean, Jesus gets out of the boat, and, he, and, and when he gets out of the boat on the other side, he's greeted by a big crowd. Here, he's greeted by one guy. 
And that one guy is a naked man that's filled with demons. Was well, It's quite a welcoming party, right? So here, here comes this guy, and he couldn't even live in a house. He lived among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. So I want you to pay attention to the pronouns here. What have you to do with me? I beg you, don't torment me. So he's speaking in first-person pronouns or, or, or uh, singular pronouns um, in all, in all first-person. And then why is he doing this? And Luke says, for Jesus had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And then parenthetically, he tells us for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So should we see there a comparison between the spirit driving Jesus into the demon, into the desert, into the demon, into the desert, into the wilderness after his baptism? to be confronted by Satan, as opposed to here we see it the other way around. And part of the Middle Eastern or Near Eastern mindset here would have been that that's who lives in those wastelands. And likewise, in in the among the tombs as well. So that they would they would see, yes, that why would this demon drive him out into the wilderness, into the desert? And it would be because those are the kinds of places demons inhabit. And so he would break these shackles and chains and, and go into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And when he asks him that, that word that, that's there, what is your name? That is not what is y'all's name. It is your singular. He's asking the man. And then he, the man, said, legion, for many demons had entered him. So who is answering this? That's clearly not this man's proper name. He's not called Legion. So who's answering this? Why did the demons begin to respond to this? And how big is a Legion? A Legion, a Roman Legion was 6,000 soldiers. And so this thing speaks, and we're not say, I'm not saying that that means that it's 6,000 demons. I'm just saying this thing says, I'm a bunch this is not a human response. It's, it's the demons responding now. And he, so he begins, and it looks like that there's a, there's a conversation going on with the man, but he's not there to torment the man. He's there to torment the demons. He's spoken to the demons. He commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So who is this conversation? Does the man even have anything to do with this conversation? No, it seems that he is completely demon-possessed and that the only voice that's here in response to Jesus at this point is the voice of the demons. So even when it says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. That seems that that's the demon speaking. And it's speaking with one singular voice. And so, he, but, but what does it do? It, it recognizes Jesus, son of the most high God. So it knows, they, whatever, know that this is Jesus. I mean, this is one of those things where even the Bible sometimes struggles with pronouns. <laughs> so, and they, that, and then, and then, what do we get? They begged him not to demand, to, to command them to depart into the abyss. And where is the abyss? Well, it's the place where those rebellious spirits are kept until the time of judgment. 
And so they don't want to be cast into the abyss. Well, who can blame them? But then, then it becomes odd that there was a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside, and they, they the demons, begged him to let th- him, Jesus, to let them, the demons, enter these, the pigs. So he gave them permission. Why? Why in the world would he have done that? And, and I believe it has to do with a demonstration of his power. And, and it, it hits at the level of, of economics. So the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now, we don't know what becomes of the demons after that. It seems that they're rendered powerless in this place. But we don't know what becomes of them. And then the herdsmen saw what had happened. They fled and told it in the city and in the country. So everywhere they went, they told this. And you can bet that they did. They saw something that day that was beyond anything that they could ever have imagined. You know, this man was not a danger or a harm to them in any way before that. And then now suddenly the economic livelihood is gone. And they're just the herdsmen. They're the ones keeping the pigs for someone else. And so now we've got an economic hardship that's going to be placed on these people because of this. But is Jesus cursing pigs in this? I don't think so, I, because of go and kill and eat in uh, Acts 10 when Peter's told to go. So when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled, told it in the city and the country, and then people went out to see what had happened. They heard about Jesus, and they reacted in exactly the same way the people did around Capernaum and other places where Jesus went. They went to see this thing they had heard about. And then they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Whatever the power was that was in this guy, Jesus, it was sufficient to have delivered this man from a legion of demons that had beset him for a long time, and they all knew who he was. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. So he did what they wanted him to do. So the... The demons begged him not to torment them. Then they begged him to be allowed to go into the pigs. And now the people beg Jesus to leave, and Jesus does. But (laughs) the man from whom the demons had had gone begged that he might be with him, Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And I've said this before, guarantee you this, that if Jesus had allowed this man to go with him, what would ultimately have happened was these people would have completely forgotten about this or they would have said, nope, didn't really happen. Except you've got the problem of dual witnesses, right? I mean, three witnesses, really. You have the witnesses, the herdsmen who saw all this stuff. You have the witness of the man himself now. And you also have the witness of all those pigs being gone. So there, there are multiple witnesses to what happened here, and, and all these witnesses are going to combine to make sure that this story doesn't go away. And you can bet that it was in the lore of that area for a very long time after this happened. And this man went away just praising the Lord and, and telling his story. It's an amazing thing to see what Jesus does here. 
in the Acts passage, remember now that, that the governor, Festus, Portius Festus, has said, you know, I don't know what to make of all this. And what he really meant was, I don't, I don't really want to have to, to make a decision here. But he asked to go to Rome, Paul did, so I, I've got to send him, but I need to actually write up the charge sheet on this so that we can know exactly why he's being sent to Rome. In other words, I, I should have made a decision and dealt with this issue, but I chose not to because I didn't want to upset those Jews over there. So I'm sending him to Rome just like he asked, even though I'm not required to necessarily, but I really have to tell him something. And it's, it seems like he's saying, and it needs to be something that's complex enough that I shouldn't deal with it myself. So he's trying to cover his bases, and so, so it happens that the king, not the emperor, the king, Agrippa, comes, and, and so he says, okay, you hear him, because you're a Jew, maybe you understand this. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. After he's heard the charges presented against him, now Paul gets the opportunity to give a defense. So he stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews, because ye are one. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. So everybody knows my history. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. He was raised up under the Rabbi Gamaliel, and, and Paul was an important person. I mean, he, he did a lot of stuff, and he's going to tell us what some of that is and how it is that more people would know him than you might commonly think. He says, Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I'm accused by Jews, O, God, o King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So he's, he's setting out for himself. Not only was he a Pharisee who lived by a strict interpretation of the law, he's also now being put on trial, what he says, for believing in, <laughs> the, and his hope is in, the resurrection, which is something the Pharisees believe, but, but the Sadducees don't. So he's, he's dividing again, but he's, he's claiming uh, hey, look, I'm a good Pharisee. I believe the strict interpretation of the law, and I also believe in the resurrection. I just believe it's already happened, and it's a certain hope. I, I, don't even, I don't have even a smidgen of doubt. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So in other words, I didn't just arrest these people. I also you know, participated in the conviction of these people, giving them the death sentence. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I couldn't get enough of it. I, my, my appetite for persecuting these people couldn't be sated. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus, to Syria, with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language. And that's a little detail that I've never really paid any attention to before, is, is that the voice spoke in Hebrew. It didn't speak in Greek, it spoke in Hebrew. Now, that would affirm, certainly, 
the belief of the Jews that the, the Hebrew language is actually God's language. It's his n- native tongue in the way that he communicates with human beings. And it, and it makes some sense because they're the ones who accepted the covenant. And so that he would have put the words of the covenant in their mouths, in their language, in such a way that they would understand it. And so it, it becomes God's language. And so when it becomes God's language, then you have to delve deeply into all kinds of things, like the, the numerology, which is called gematria, uh, of, of, of like the, um, the esoteric Judaism. Um, you know, people who study um, and, dive, and dive deep into those things that, that become esoteric Judaism, which, which then takes things into a very different kind of realm of interpretation. And, and so they come up with, okay, so now I'm going to um, interpret this text, but I'm going to interpret it on the surface level, and then I'm going to interpret it on this level, and then I'm going to interpret it on a deeper level. And, and that deeper level is, is where they come up with this idea, where, where, where the idea of this language being God's language uh, is, is so important because now every single letter matters, and every num- letter has a numeric value, and so therefore there, there's multiple levels of interpretation that they use at that point, and and, and so it it becomes that, and so that's but it's odd here. I've never noticed it before, but he speaks in the Hebrew language to Saul. Could have spoken in Greek. Would have been just as easy to speak to him in Greek, but but no, he was on a Jewish mission. He wasn't going about his business working with Gentiles here. He was on a mission that he believed was of God, and so it would have been important for God to speak to him in that language to authenticate the vision. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And as I've said many times before, that Paul had to believe that my life was probably going to be pretty daggum short after that, after you hear that word from heaven that, that says, I'm Jesus. Uh-oh. But rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose. Here's why I appeared to you. I want to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. In other words, you've already seen me, particularly right this minute, by the way, and then you're going to continue to see me, and you're going to give witness to those things. Well, thank God my life is not ending right now. And it's amazing. He's not, Paul's not, he's on a mission, but now he's given a different mission directly by God. He says, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. So I'm going to protect you. I'm giving you a mission, and I'm going to protect you from your people and from the Gentiles. In other words, you're going to face a lot of opposition, but I'm going to give you protection against that. And I'm sending you for this reason, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So what is sanctification? Faith in Christ Jesus. And he says, I'm giving you a message and I'm giving you my protection, and I'm sending you to the Gentiles and to your people to go and spread the message of everything you've seen and heard. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I'll bet not. <laughs> You're talking about somebody who just received an extraordinary amount of grace. 
but declared first to those in Damascus. I started immediately right there in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea. And so at some level, he's fulfilling the apostolic commission that Jesus gave to the original apostles, Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so here Paul says, I started in Damascus, then I went to Jerusalem and Judea. And then also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. So he's saying, I fulfilled the commission Jesus gave to the apostles, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He says, I did it, <clears throat> that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And, and I mentioned this not too terribly long ago. John Wesley wouldn't count a convert unless he observed them over a period of time and saw real amendment of life. They had to do things. They couldn't just make a statement. He said, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I'm testifying about Jewish scriptures being fulfilled, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles, which are words that he takes directly from um, what we know today is the song of Simeon, the old man who had been told that he would see the coming of Messiah before he died, who, who used these words to, to give light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And, and that's just a quote from the Old Testament. And so, so here Paul's saying, I, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, and I'm not going to be disobedient to it now, because it's important. I understand true authority. I understand you have power, but that's a delegated power. It's delegated to you first by the emperor, but really and truly it's, dele it's delegated to you by God. The real power behind the throne and the real authority comes directly from him and him alone. And so I'm not going to fear you or Festus or e even these Jews. Nope, I'm not going to fear them. I'm only going to fear Jesus, the, the one that even the demons know is the son of the Most High God.